Hi there, my name is Susan Schultz. I'm a professor of psychiatry at the University of Iowa, and I'll be speaking today about new diagnostic tools for understanding dementia. Now we have a lot of new emerging imaging tools that will help us understand cognitive change over time. Some things are available now and some things will be available in the near future. So I'll be talking a little bit about both. What we can do now to understand persons who are experiencing some cognitive decline and what some of the new tools will be to ideally not only diagnose but even potentially treat people who may not yet have much clinical change, but they may have changes perhaps on brain imaging that might be meaningful and give us a source of monitoring interventions. And this is my disclosure statement. I do not have any financial interests or relationships um, with any of the topics I'll be discussing in my presentation. So what is Alzheimer's disease is really fundamental to what I'll be discussing today. I think when we look across the population of baby boomers, most people are very concerned. Is Alzheimer's disease in my family? How do I know if I'm starting to have it versus what we all experience as we get older with our memories not um, clicking as quickly as they may have in the past? And oftentimes, even after I've explained Alzheimer's, um, disease and the pathology at great length, oftentimes there are still questions, well, how do you, what's dementia versus what's Alzheimer's? And how do you separate the two? And that's a very important and very good question that really isn't an easy answer. And it's something that I think we're learning more over time um, how to really answer it. Now, dementia, non-specifically, you know, means experiencing a cognitive loss or a change in thinking skills that's a new change from a previous level of function. Now, dementia or, or a loss of cognition can be attributable to a number of different things, a stroke, a head injury, a variety of an infectious source, that type of thing. So there's a variety of sources of experiencing dementia. We worry most about Alzheimer's disease because it's a common cause. Um, and then the question after that is, well, Alzheimer's is a disease with a pathology. So when is it, when does the threshold, um, when is that crossed to have a dementia or a cognitive loss? And are those two things separate? So increasingly, they actually are. It used to be, or in many cases still is, that when a person is diagnosed with a, with a memory loss or a dementia, and it's attributed to Alzheimer's disease, they're already experiencing the memory loss or the problem. However, the disease process, in fact, may be starting even before the memory loss. And so the disease process that leads to the memory loss is probably there before it's clinically apparent. And that's the purpose behind understanding new biomarkers that help us understand when the disease pathology is starting to happen so that we can try to think about the disease even before 
the memory loss has happened and the dementia is apparent. So more and more so the question of is it Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's dementia has more meaning over time and that's really the the whole premise behind a great deal of Alzheimer's research right now and I'll be talking about some information that we've learned from the Alzheimer's disease neuroimaging initiative which is really a worldwide study that's assembling biomarkers, often image biomark imaging biomarkers, but also genetic and CSF biomarkers, to try to understand across the range of aging in normal adults to mild changes to actual dementia changes, how different biomarkers in the brain, blood, and spinal fluid might change over time. And this is very much like the model of understanding heart disease by tracking back to early changes in hypertension, vascular resilience, you know, um, endothelial function, cholesterol. All of these different factors converge as biomarkers that have meaning for the outcome of cardiovascular disease. And so this is really a disease model that follows that idea with the same premise that you could intervene as we do for hypertension to prevent later heart disease, perhaps there are interventions with the right biomarkers identified that could lead to prevention of Alzheimer's disease. And that's exciting to think about because, of course, prevention has so many um, beneficial attributes as opposed to trying to cure something that's already disabled an individual. Now, to understand the biomarkers that I'll be talking about, we need to understand a little bit about the underlying pathology of Alzheimer's disease itself. And many individuals are familiar that we talk about um, a protein called tau protein that makes tangles. These tangles actually occur inside the brain cells, so we call this intracellular tau protein that tends to result in death of the brain cells or neurons. Now amyloid plaques, amyloid is the other protein that builds up outside of the brain cells, outside the neurons, and it contributes, we think, to the death of the neurons. So it's important to know that there are two different biomarkers. One, we tend to see tau protein as cells are, are essentially passing away from this fibrillated protein inside the, inside the cells. And the other protein is an amyloid protein, which also seems to be a marker outside the cells that seems to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. These are things that we know from looking at brains post-mortem to understand the source of Alzheimer's disease. So often we hear that, well, Alzheimer's disease can only be, be confirmed when we identify particularly these amyloid plaques after death in an autopsy of the individual's brain. However, you know, compared to this schematic that I just showed you, this is very simple just to, to describe the amyloid and the tau, but if we look at other illustrations of how um, the components of the brain are, are assimilated um, in different brain regions, it's actually more complex than simply um, neurons floating out here um, essentially within nothing. There's actually much more going on, and here we have a more complex diagram showing that a cross-section of a blood vessel here shows 
how that the very, very small microvessels are actually, you know, perfusing the brain throughout um, the brain tissue, and they exist in between these neurons. You know, here I showed you neurons, a healthy neuron, and a neuron that is passed away with tangles. The neurons out here also have a number of things going on in between. There's blood vessels in between. Um, there's a variety of other cells that may be reactive in the context of inflammation or or infection so there's a lot there's a lot happening here um, that isn't just neurons so the brain itself uh, is perfused by the micro vessels and many of you may be familiar with the issue of small vessel disease or micro vessel disease that we talk about as an important aspect in the progression of vascular related cognitive change so the health of a small blood vessel here is very, very important to the surrounding neurons. As you can imagine, they're dependent on nutrition and oxygen and um, cellular function. More importantly, the amyloid here that I've shown you um, floating in the brain, amyloid actually is both soluble and insoluble. Insoluble protein aggregates into these extracellular plaques, but when amyloid is in a soluble state, it's actually potentially clearable through the, the membrane of the small blood vessels. So the brain with good perfusion is able to remove some amyloid while it's still soluble and potentially be important in preventing plaque formation within the brain um, tissue. This is a very important recognition that, in fact, number one, vascular health is extremely important, not only for vascular dementia, but vascular health may have a great deal of influence over whether Alzheimer's disease is, is prevented and the outcomes associated with Alzheimer's disease. And as you may be familiar, there's a great deal of literature already showing how having vascular risk factors influences the occurrence of even Alzheimer's disease, not just um, vascular dementia. So I think these are, these are important um, opportunities to think about ways that we can both prevent and treat dementia. So one of the aspects of new research that I'll be talking about today is to discuss some findings within just the past few years that have been developed with neuroimaging techniques that has helped us to understand that very soon Alzheimer's disease may not be a diagnosis that can be confirmed only after death. In fact, we can actually examine some of these proteins during life using some new brain imaging techniques that may be very helpful in the future um, to help us with both diagnosis and early interventions and potentially being able to identify these proteins may actually help us intervene for individuals even prior to our ability to detect memory change in those individuals. So I think this is a very exciting new avenue of research that I think as we, as we learn more and more over time will be both very beneficial as well as um, important in terms of decision making in later life that we'll have to think about the ability to use this information as well.
So the hypothetical model that we're using, and I'll be going through more detail on, on what things are clinically available and what things are researched throughout the, the rest of our lecture today. And so this is a very complex slide that just gives you an idea of the hypothetical model that we think explains to us how the different biomarkers change over the course of being a normal, healthy older adult and then perhaps being an older adult who is preclinical or not showing any symptom changes at all, no change in memory, no change in daily living skills. Um, but maybe we're hypothesizing that some of these biomarkers are starting to change. Now, once a person's experiencing mild cognitive impairment, there seem to be different biomarkers changing. And dementia here is when most people come to clinical attention, when they've experienced enough problems with memory or other cognitive skills that they now need to seek an evaluation or assistance. So it may be difficult to see on your slide, but here what we're looking at in the context of dementia, ranging from normal to abnormal, is the brown line, I believe if you can see it clearly here to the far um, right of your screen, is clinical function. So individuals tend to present for clinical care when their clinical function has declined. Perhaps they're having trouble with bills or driving or managing a business or something has brought them to attention. Now, clinical function often brings people to attention, but cognition, sort of the, the purple line here, often can be measured as abnormal, not only when a person is experiencing dementia or clearly abnormal memory, but also when people start to have what's called mild cognitive impairment. Cognition actually can be detected as not quite normal at that time. Perhaps clinical function is not changing, but clearly cognitive function, often memory function, is changing. Now, right around that time that these things are changing, um, brain structure also starts to change as measured by an MRI scan during the mild cognitive impairment period. Now, often this is not detectable change outside of a research setting, but there is change that is, a, that is capable of being detected if longitudinal measures are assessed so that we know a person at time one, six months or a year later has changes in brain volume and I'll, I'll mention the specific regions of volume between time one and time two, we can detect this change using a standard MRI scan that, that is clinically available, but often the clinical um, readings from those scans don't have the quantitation that's available right now in research settings um, to make a quantitative assessment at a time one and time two point. Now there are other things rapidly changing here in the MCI period that may more and more be used as a clinical focus because their rate of change is occurring during the mild cognitive impairment time. And this, the two measures here are tau protein can be quantified in the CSF or the spinal fluid so that tau protein, which as I showed, tends to accumulate with inside cells and then it's released when the cells are actually injured or the cells have died. 
tau protein is released. So tau protein is measurable in the spinal fluid. We don't have an imaging measure for tau at this time. But tau can be measured in the spinal fluid, and it's in fact increasing if you measure longitudinal change in persons who have mild cognitive impairment. Now, once a person already has dementia, we hypothesize that tau sort of maxes out, that it's, it's already elevated and it reaches um, a threshold where it tends to um, have a ceiling or a plateau effect. Around this same time, synaptic dysfunction, meaning at the cellular level, the, the neurons aren't working synaptically in the way or the efficiency that they do normally. So that is changing, and that can be measured clinically using a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan. And I will show you images of those scans. Those images essentially measure metabolic function in the regions of the brain. So brain metabolism of glucose is measured by those scans, showing increased areas of activity versus reduced areas of glucose utilization or activity. So that interestingly changes, or its data suggests that it changes now in parallel with the tau protein going up. Now amyloid, and I will show to you images that we can detect amyloid in the brain um, through imaging. Amyloid seems to be very interesting that emerging data suggests that amyloid may be the earliest sign of an impending risk for dementia. But amyloid loses any kind of a linear correlation even before people are really clinically apparent. So amyloid seems to have a rate of change, perhaps pre-symptomatically. And then as we know from post-mortem evaluation, the magnitude of amyloid doesn't always, doesn't always correlate with the actual clinical impairment of the individual. Its presence is meaningful, but its magnitude based on autopsy doesn't necessarily have a direct correlation with the magnitude of the cognitive impairment of an individual. And that's being borne out now by the imaging data that amyloid seems to increase in the brain, but after a certain point, it's no longer meaningfully changing as the illness develops over time. It seems to sort of plateau or, or max out, if you will. Now this is the model that we're learning through research that is essentially following individuals, recruiting some healthy, recruiting some in the mild cognitive impairment range, and some in the Alzheimer's dementia range, and then conducting longitudinal follow-up so that if a large enough sample is acquired that's longitudinally followed to examine the rate of change in all of these biomarkers, and then we combine all of the data from all those individuals, we can design maps like this that help us understand what measures are changing at a given course over the lifetime of moving from normal to dementia. So this is a complex um, chart that I'll break down into the different pieces, and it starts with amyloid as the first marker, the second being fluorodeoxyglucose PET imaging, and then MRI is the next um, clinical imaging measure that changes. And then lastly, we see cognitive change as a clinical measure that helps us make the diagnosis. Um, and lastly, daily life impairment brings people to the clinician. Now, 
a lot of what I talked about focused on this mild cognitive impairment area. As you can see, that's when most of the biomarkers appear to be having the most change. This means that this period of time is probably the most important if we're going to design interventions that ideally could change this slope so that the cognitive change happening here or the MRI changes um, don't continue to increase to more abnormal, but they level off because we're doing some intervention, ideally. Or we can identify individuals where they level off and then understand why certain individuals don't have the same rate as others because there are many different trajectories that combine to make these different slopes, but there's great individual differences in the true outcomes that comprise those data. So if the mild cognitive impairment, or MCI range, is the most important intervention point, and probably the thing that most of us understandably worry about, um, it's worth spending a little time thinking about the differences between mild cognitive impairment versus what we all experience with normal aging. And there are age-related changes in cognitive function that have been very well characterized and well understood that occur at the population level, but don't necessarily represent a dementing pathology. And in normal aging, that I hope everyone else has experienced, because I certainly have, a loss of memory, particularly for words and names, where we have a perfect visual memory of an individual whom we feel we know very well, but we simply can't remember a name at a given moment when we would like to remember that name. So words and names often escape us over time with normal aging, and this is considered part of the normal aging process. Similarly, slowed information processing speed is also well established to occur with normal aging. And what that means is the ability to sort of do rapid online processing, um, where you take in some information, use that information, and, and make decisions about information, it, things click along a little bit more slowly um, with age. That can be a function of both uh, more difficulties with both attention um, as well as processing speed, but overall for a given task of making a decision or um, processing information, um, speed is slightly um, reduced as we get older. And a lot of us feel that way, that we just don't click along quite as quickly as we used to. Similarly, difficulty sustaining attention with multiple competing stimuli. So if you've got a lot going on, you know, multiple different thoughts to keep in order as you complete a process, sustaining attention when you're multitasking can be a little bit more difficult as individuals get older. Um, but lastly, normal aging, most of these changes do not result in functional impairment or lack of ability to get through a work day or get through a shopping trip or a complex task. Impairment overall um, does not happen that as we get older, we still get our, our, our work done. It just takes a little bit more effort or a, a little bit more memory items or things that we might keep in a list, that type of thing. But overall function is maintained.
Now we distinguish the difference of mild cognitive impairment when if we measure memory over time and the essence of mild cognitive impairment was largely based on amnestic impairment or memory impairment. However, it's also possible to have impairment in other cognitive domains, but memory um, typically is the focus or amnestic MCI for the purposes of understanding individuals who may move on to have Alzheimer's dementia. Memory impairment has to be not only outside the range of after accounting for what a normal aging change would be. It has to be outside that range and increase over a 6 to a 12 month period so that there has to be a rate of change. Some individuals might have some deficits but it may be a deficit that they have had over a lifetime and if it doesn't change over a longitudinal 6 to 12 month period, it doesn't constitute MCI in the spirit of a risk factor for a dementia necessarily. Now in the context of MCI, typically some cognitive functions are unimpaired so that a person is not significantly impaired in their day-to-day -day life. So similar to normal aging, individuals with MCI tend to you know, make lists or use other strategies so that their daily function, their ability to go about their business, is typically not impaired. And that's the distinction that separates MCI from a dementia diagnosis where significant impairment as well as significant changes in memory are all evident together. Now when people are in the mild cognitive impairment range, we know that among that group, about 15% per year may move in to an early dementia phase, while some individuals may not necessarily move into dementia, but we know that mild cognitive impairment is a group with a risk to move into a meeting criteria for dementia or a major neurocognitive disorder to use some of the new terminology. Now changes, as I mentioned in this schematic a few slides ago, on MRI scan do seem to be apparent in persons who are moving um, through the MCI spectrum. So MRI research has shown that particularly this area, the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex here, are the areas most vulnerable to showing change or a loss of size as the person moves through the MCI phase. So it's this region, it's not total brain volume at this point, and oftentimes MRI scans read clinically uh, may just mention things like small vessel disease. Um, they may not necessarily mention hippocampal volume and the reason for that is clinical MRI scans are not able to quantitate or even necessarily see or detect the hippocampus per se. They're simply not the right tools to measure that. So what an MRI scan read clinically can tell you is typically global atrophy or whole, whole brain atrophy. And at the level of the whole temporal lobe or the whole frontal lobe, there may be mention of temporal atrophy or parietal atrophy or frontal atrophy 
at the at that scale which can be discerned clinically but the hippocampus per se cannot be cannot be read typically on on a normal mri sequence that's obtained in a clinical setting so we do know that it is measurable with research quantitation of these regions they do change over time in the MCI period of a person's um, trajectory toward Alzheimer's disease. This gives us an opportunity when we test new treatments for mild cognitive impairment or if a person in a research setting wants to understand how they're changing over time, um, this can be quantified and we can detect whether a person is stable or changing um, in this region of the brain that has the most significance for the occurrence of Alzheimer's disease. Now, PET scanning is also something that is often done after a person has dementia. Now, fluorodeoxyglucose scanning is the type that I, that I mentioned earlier that shows brain metabolism or glucose uptake in the brain. That can be used clinically to help understand whether it seems to be an Alzheimer's pattern in a person who's already showing evidence of dementia. Characteristically, that pattern is reduced on, on an FDG PET scan, reduced temporal lobe uh, metabolic function and reduced parietal lobe metabolic function. Those often show up on fluorodeoxyglucose imaging. Now at this point the quantitative tools aren't used right now in the MCI range but I think that's a tool that may well be used more and more in the future. So memory loss is usually what we're actually tracking clinically during the MCI period. Um, however, using more tools to track biomarkers during this period will be very, very meaningful for understanding why some people in this, this range of disability or range in mild changes that are very, very subtle, why some people do move into the dementia um, range and other people don't. So I think the ability to understand what biomarkers are changing and per perhaps implement changes in lifestyle, diet, or other, um, other medication interventions that might make a difference over time. So as I mentioned earlier, much of these data that are helping us understand how the brain changes over time are derived from a very large study called the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. And there's a great deal of information on their webpage that explains the global scope of this study and more detail on many of the biomarkers that I'm mentioning today and how these are being studied with this initiative which is part of a broader initiative called the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Studies that are trying to also understand treatments. So the, the purpose behind the studies that I'll be talking about are really to find more sensitive methods to detect Alzheimer's pathology at earlier and earlier stages. And part of the reason that most of these data have been collected and why the study was undertaken is that when you look clinically at persons with mild cognitive impairment, most purely clinical studies within those samples that don't use biomarkers find so much variability to figure out who needs um, different treatment interventions that there's a lot of variation in outcome of who moves from MCI to Alzheimer's disease.
So this study is taking a look not only at spinal fluid amyloid and tau that I mentioned, but also amyloid imaging. And I'll be showing you how we can image amyloid in the brain um, that is at this time clinically available, but it's limited and there will be more evolution of its clinical use over time. Um, FDG PET imaging is also clinically available, but somewhat limited in use at this time. And then structural MRI imaging um, is already in widespread use, but will evolve over time in how it contributes to some of the decision-making on diagnosis. And then genetic markers will help us over time, as well as correlating everything in this study with how the brain looks post-mortem. Now, this actually has been updated in the interval of, of literally um, compiling this talk. Michael Weiner, the lead investigator for the study, this has already been updated to many more publications, um, has really made information from the study available very, very broadly, not only to readers, but to investigators that wish to look more carefully at those data. So it's, there's a great deal of information way over and above what I'll be able to cover today that's helping us understand the implications of this new information on brain imaging. So a very brief history on how amyloid imaging developed um, that's all occurred over about the past five years or so uh, may be helpful, but amyloid imaging was first conducted using Pittsburgh compound B, or sometimes called PIB imaging. And what they discovered when they discovered the ability to develop compounds that can demonstrate the presence of amyloid in the brain. And amyloid, of course, is that extracellular protein that we think builds up but seems to plateau in persons at risk for Alzheimer's disease. So amyloid changes were the changes that I showed on the schematic that seemed to increase perhaps earliest in the course of a trajectory toward Alzheimer's disease. So when it was discovered that we had the capability to detect amyloid on imaging, it was found that it had a very, very high ability to demonstrate a positive amyloid scan. And so here we show the red in sort of the frontotemporal and parietal regions, um, that 97% of persons with Alzheimer's disease demonstrated a positive scan of amyloid. And a small majority of persons with mild cognitive impairment also were positive. And what the intriguing piece that led to that hypothetical diagram that I showed is that it was observed that over 20% of persons who were not symptomatic, healthy older adults who did not have any evidence of mild cognitive or memory changes, did have increased retention of the amyloid PIB compound. And so that suggests that, in fact, it is the earliest brain change to occur, and it in fact may occur when there's still a healthy individual who is not um, exhibiting any concerns about mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. Now here's, this is a, another demonstration of how amyloid imaging appears. So a person with Alzheimer's dementia is shown here, and you can see um, you know, fairly large ventricles on MRI. 
um, as well as this uptake of amyloid. Now you might have an aging control who may also have large ventricles but they don't have Alzheimer's disease and they do not show this amyloid uptake. And so age match controls you can distinguish people who are experiencing the amyloid deposition as the source of their cognitive change versus other people who may have cognitive change but it's not attributable or associated with amyloid deposition. Now the way that this was that these imaging techniques were validated was important to compare them against the standard which was looking at post-mortem brains or brains that have passed away. Now the newer marker that's used is actually fluorbetapyr, which is um, a newer amyloid um, compound or amyloid imaging compound that's gaining more widespread use at this time because it's a little bit more readily adaptable to more settings um, not requiring a cyclotron on site to produce the compound. So this was validated against individuals who were able to have amyloid imaging and then they were able to um, make their brain tissue available after death to detect on histopathology whether the amyloid plaques that we know have been associated with Alzheimer's disease, whether they correlate with the amyloid imaging that's obtained during life. And in fact these individuals who passed away, um, one person who did not have Alzheimer's disease and did not have amyloid in the brain on post-mortem analysis here, um, did not show any tracer pickup. Now the fluorbeta appears unique that it tends to bind to white matter a little bit, so you see some white matter uptake here. But in general in the cortical areas there is, is no amyloid tracer uptake as you'll see here. Um, there really is almost no amyloid evidence here. But when you look at an individual now who has some moderate amyloid plaques after death, they do have cortical uptake of amyloid and you can see or cortical uptake of the fluorbeta pier which is demonstrating the amyloid and then a person who has many amyloid plaques after death a different person who um, has a much more prominent um, fluorbeta pier um, binding to the amyloid that shows here um, their distribution. So these things um, have been now validated using postmortem tissue and we continue to show evidence that anywhere up to a third of individuals may actually demonstrate an elevation of cortical amyloid but not yet display any clinical changes suggesting that they're having memory decline or decline in other cognitive function. Now this is very preliminary and we still need to understand with longitudinal follow-up over many years why some people who may have elevated amyloid early in life may or may not go on to have memory loss. We know that some individuals may pass away and show evidence of amyloid plaques in their brains but during life didn't necessarily show evidence of dementia or Alzheimer's dementia. And so it's very important to understand that amyloid appears to not only be associated with dementia but it appears to be elevated early on but we need to understand what may be associated with the clinical outcomes or what are the predictors of these clinical outcomes. To show um, a depiction here of what the fluorodeoxyglucose that I mentioned looks like 
Now fluorodeoxyglucose is a different type of brain scan that will give us even more important information because FDG PET scanning shows us when brain activity is actually changing which seems to occur later than when amyloid starts to change which seems to occur even before brain metabolism starts to change. So brain metabolism aging is what gives us our indication now that the brain is not functioning as well or it's starting to display some difficulty in the way that the cells are working. Now when you do an FDG PET scan that can be done clinically you want to have all this nice red uptake. So this is a good scan compared to the amyloid that I showed you where you don't want a lot of cortical uptake. You want cortical uptake of glucose and you want your brain cells to be using that glucose in a, in a very um, highly active way which shows that your brain is indeed working. So a person who may have a lot of amyloid deposition in these in regions of the brain probably doesn't show metabolic activity because those regions are not working properly. So this on the right would be a fluorodeoxyglucose scan of a person with Alzheimer's disease where the cortical regions that you want to be active are not taking up glucose that's been labeled. Now here, in a healthy person, it's taking up all kinds of glucose and using it to do um, the brain's work. So these measures combined tell us when a high amyloid scan is actually going along with a brain that might be having trouble functioning. And it tells us when we probably have a clinical concern about Alzheimer's disease. So to put it all together, if we look at a person here on the right who's developed Alzheimer's disease versus a person, a control person on the left column here, an Alzheimer's brain, particularly later in the illness, you know, in the MCI phase and later, is showing loss of tissue here, mainly in the temporal and hippocampal regions here, whereas another control person does not show the loss here. And then by the end of Alzheimer's, there is global structural loss, but you can see very prominently here in the temporal lobe and in, in the hippocampal region. Now a control person would be showing good glucose uptake here on an FDG PET scan, whereas an Alzheimer's person is not. And then if we want to nail down the diagnosis a little bit more clearly, we can look at amyloid uptake, and then we understand in this person in the right that their loss of brain metabolic function is attributable to amyloid in the regions, their cortical regions, that should be more active. Now, in a person who does not have Alzheimer's dementia, they're not having that amyloid uptake in those regions of the brain. So to summarize thus far, we're moving toward the ability to use these biomarkers to understand how Alzheimer's develops by using amyloid imaging, and then it helps us to be able to correlate with measures in the spinal fluid as well. Spinal fluid tau and phosphorylated tau start to increase over time. And interestingly, the premise is thought that because amyloid is depositing in the brain, amyloid in the spinal fluid is actually reduced. These are things that can be used in the clinical setting to help confirm what we're seeing in the imaging, often still a research setting. Um, these measures in the spinal fluid, we will be validating more and more over time to understand exactly how they change and how they may predict 
future change in persons who were starting to show some cognitive decline. And then as we follow along as well with, with cerebral imaging of glucose metabolism, we can also understand how the brain is changing in a metabolic way even before volumes start to change. So I think right now in the clinical setting where we're oftentimes relying only on the clinical picture, more and more so now over the next few years, we'll be starting to use more of these tools that give us a great deal more information and more opportunity to intervene, perhaps intervene with lifestyle measures or, or experimental treatments in people who are starting to have higher tau in their spinal fluid, but they haven't yet gone on to have some of these other measures change. And that'll help us as we try to ultimately tease apart a model for why does Alzheimer's disease start um, and how does it progress over time. And we think that obviously the genetics that each of us brings to the table will probably have um, some importance over time as we learn more and more about what genetic predictors um, predict this path of changes in all these biomarkers. And we know, of course, that amyloid accumulation is a player at some point in this progression. And the evidence is starting to tell us that amyloid might occur very early on. But we'll need to understand why some people go on to have a lot more going on some inflammatory changes in the brain, which incurs glial activation, um, which is another sign of change in the brain over time, tangle formation, the tau protein I talked about, and the synaptic dysfunction I talked about that shows up on the fluorodeoxyglucose pad, and ultimately cell death seems to be happening here at some midpoint that is heavily influenced by cerebrovascular risk factors, probably more more so than we appreciate, um, and more and more so over time I think we are appreciating, but also other age-related brain diseases, things like trauma-related diseases, um, other factors that do tie in very closely to cerebrovascular disease like diabetes, um, and then a number of, of environmental factors. Things like different injuries, different stressors, other factors related to um, pathogens in the environment, you know, heavy metals and other contaminants in the environment, as well as the magnitude of cognitive reserve that we are perhaps born with but may also gain over a lifetime of epigenetic factors that interact with the environment. So there are many, many different ways that we can learn about the different factors that influence whether this whole pathway results in a clinically meaningful state. We certainly know that people that are born with genetic risk and perhaps even have amyloid accumulation don't necessarily all reach this point. And I think that's where we have to be very active at the earlier points so that we're not waiting until our patients present here. And then we try to do our best, but it's often at a place where we've lost some opportunities that perhaps we had back here.
And as we're learning more over time, when we're looking at what's making a difference between people who've moved into the mild cognitive impairment range among those who progress to Alzheimer's disease, we certainly know as we look at people who have the amyloid positivity on, on their scans, we know in this particular um, analysis of the data thus far, as we look at people who move from MCI and convert to Alzheimer's disease, how that proportion changes. And so this is over a very long follow-up of years, how these two different um, survival curves separate between people who do not show positive amyloid and people that do. If you look at the proportion of non-converters over time, after a very long follow-up, there's only between 20 and 40 percent of people haven't converted over time. So the proportion of non-converters to Alzheimer's disease, if you're amyloid positive, is significantly lower than people who do not convert to Alzheimer's disease who start out with negative amyloid scans. But what's really interesting, you can see that there's still a substantial group over very extended follow-up here who are amyloid positive but have not gone on to have Alzheimer's disease. And conversely, there are people who do not have amyloid in their brains, um, but they have converted to Alzheimer's disease. So even though these survival curves are different, there's still a great deal to learn to intervene over time on the boundaries of when, they're, when they um, don't behave as expected. So I think implementing future diagnostic criteria will help us to identify the preclinical states and the mild cognitively impaired states and the Alzheimer's dementia states so that we can start to understand what things predict um, progression versus not. So right now, for the most part, many of these measures, especially preclinically, are still in the research setting, and we still need to validate what the different biomarkers mean. In the mild cognitive impaired setting, we're still trying to understand the significance of each of the biomarkers. But within the Alzheimer's dementia setting, we have the opportunity now to start to designate patients on whether they're clinically purely diagnosed using clinical criteria, or whether a biomarker has confirmed pathologic criteria that will help us understand things over time. Now we have current biomarkers, the amyloid imaging will be available or essentially is available clinically in, to a limited extent at this time. It will become more clinically available over time most likely versus using a purely um, clinical diagnosis without a pathologic confirmation um, through scanning, spinal fluid analyses, or others. Um, right now, when a clinical diagnosis is made, there's still some uncertainty for the patient on whether it's purely an Alzheimer's um, situation going on or whether there's a vascular component. And I think more information for patients and families as we learn over time is really going to help us, not only with patient education, but with understanding future treatments. As you might imagine, as we test new treatments in a preclinical state, you have to have something to tell if your treatment is working. If you can't rely on testing memory function, you know, we have to, to be able to detect things 
like amyloid deposition or brain metabolism so that we can test different lifestyle changes. We may have an exercise intervention very early on that can actually enhance clearance of amyloid by increasing the vascular activity of the very small blood vessels I showed you. So understanding why different things that we know benefit the brain, um, why and how they actually exert their change, will really help us in a patient-centered way to tailor different preventions and different interventions that might make a difference over the long haul. And I think thinking in this way, um, as opposed to the often the patients um, feel that their genes have dictated what's going to happen to them and their, their gene environment interaction is outside um, an individual's control. And we may learn over time that in fact there are things we can do over extremely longitudinal periods that do actually result in a measurable outcome. So I think there's a lot to think about as we move into the future of diagnostic opportunities that really will bear very heavily on how we interact with patients, how we think about people who have strong family histories of different kinds of dementia, and what we do for them over time. So I will just conclude my overview today, and I thank you for your attention, and I hope that some of this information has been helpful.